Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Gidwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also have to let you know that our latest volume of L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future is now available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So whether you're looking to discover top new voices in the genre or an aspiring writer or artist looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is James Rassone. I've interviewed James before when I first started reading his Monroe Doctrine. I think I'd read the first book. I've now read the first seven or the seven, and I'm waiting for volume eight to come out. I was hoping to get through it, but I found that there was a little speed bump on getting through it because he needs to finish writing it. So he's become a, a new favorite author of mine. So let's just get right into it. I'm very interested in talking about the Monroe Doctrine, and we're also going to some stuff of how he you know, tips for the aspiring writer on how he became one of the top, yeah, top how many of the uh, Amazon authors? So I've, I've hit the top 100 um, in the KDP All-Stars for both thriller and sci-fi for 15 months now. Wow. So welcome, James. It's good to be with you guys. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've, the Monroe Doctrine is, um, I'm going to get right into that because it's, it's an intense book. It's intense and it's scary as all get out because it's near future, 2025, World War III. Yep. Um, and you're talking about technology that I see around me yep. and experience things that's you know, very um, um, believable. And with the premise of this whole thing, it's just like, let's just get into that a little bit because this is something that it's different than the sci-fi you read that's going to take place 100, 200, 500 years down the road. Yeah. This is like a couple of years away. This is all near-term technology, yeah. So how did you come, first of all, a little bit about yourself and how that sets you up for doing this and what was like your inspiration to creating the series in the first place? Sure. So a little about myself. Um, I originally joined the uh, Army National Guard, believe it or not, back in uh, 1996. I was an 18-year-old, lost, and had no idea what I wanted to do with my future. And my uncle saw that I was going to go into the active duty military and said, no. Go in the guard with me. I'll take care of you over here. Go to college. Get your college taken care of and all that good jazz. So I, I did that. I kind of followed in his footsteps and uh, kind of did that. And then I decided I wanted to go active Air Force after 9-11. I was in Europe at the time doing a uh, semester abroad when that happened. And I think it's just the culmination of my experiences that I've, that I've accrued that has really led me to have the stories and the knowledge to be able to write what I write and write it accurately. I spent three and a half years in Iraq. Some of that was spent as a as a service member um, when I was with the Air Force as an interrogator. It was a very unique job, sitting there with the enemy day in, day out, interrogating al-Qaeda prisoners all the time. Um, and I got a lot of exposure working with some of the special operations units because we would obtain intel on you know safe house, and they would go action it and hit, hit the safe house. They'd bring back Mohammed so-and-so, pull the hood off, and I'm talking to the next guy we were just writing about four days ago um, and just working the chain up. So I got to see how some of those direct actions in, in snatch-and-grab missions actually happen. So when I'm able to write that into this, the book, 
it's written from actual experience of seeing it and being a part of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I spent a couple of years as a contractor in Iraq, uh, working for Triple Canopy, doing the private military contracting work and, and whatnot, and then kind of dove into a little bit of the uh, intel world and uh, doing some something called identity intelligence um, in Europe. And so the European AOR became my big my big area where I spent a lot of time in uh, Ukraine, uh, the Baltics, uh, the Balkans, and the uh, Eurasia areas, uh, just really kind of cutting-edge technology. Mm -hmm. And identity intelligence is looking at biometrics, okay? Biometrics and forensics enabled intelligence. This is where an IED goes off, and we go and we find the parts of the, of the car, and then we look for prints. We find prints, we find VIN numbers, we start looking for shipping manifests and tracking down where this thing came from, and we, we trace it all the way back to the origin of who received it, who shipped it, and then we start targeting those individuals, and then we start, you know, hunting down this particular cell. That's how that process works. Later on, I graduated into a little bit more where we started looking at how do we expand the, the digital fence, so to speak, around America, our digital border. And so that got me exposed to a lot more of the cutting-edge type of technology stuff on drones, looking for how do you track people, uh, facial recognition type software, and how you can do these identifying persons of interest uh, up to 100 meters away as they're approaching a checkpoint or they're coming through an airport. So we can put them to pull them aside. And I think it's all of those experiences that has helped shape me to become the writer I, I, I am. And I think the capstone for it all was on a whim, um, I applied for a graduate program at Oxford because I wanted to expand my my uh, horizons, and I wanted to look at, well, what will I do after I leave government service? Um, and I applied, and lo and behold, they accepted me out of the blue. So when you get accepted to Oxford, you go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so uh, that was a, I got a Master's of Science in Major Program Management. And what that did is that really taught me some really needed skills on researching. And it put me in contact with a lot of senior executives in different types of companies. And some of our instructors were just phenomenal. Like I had the, the CTO for uh, you know British Telecom was one of our instructors to talk about a billion-dollar transformation project they were working on, uh, one module. Another one, we had the air, we had a British Air Vice Marshal who was in charge of the F-35 program. And he was talking to us about the logistical challenge of building this whole thing and why it costs what it costs because this one part that is critical for the aircraft is built in Italy. It has to be built in Italy by contract so the Italians can set their price. And he said, he was telling us, like, this is the problem when you do a multinational project and learning how these different things work. And so all of that is kind of giving me basically the educational background, the experience of things to just create some really, really neat, neat stuff. Yeah, so without giving away the story, but I definitely want to see if I can do whatever I can to hook people into it. Because this also, for me, you've, because it is science fiction, mm -hmm. and I hope it remains science fiction. As do I. So you've taken science fact, mm -hmm. observable fact, news fact, technology fact, and then I can't tell which of your technology is science fiction versus because it's it's yeah. you've got such a smooth transition there. Everything's got a name, and mm -hmm. you I know you brought me some picture. You sent me some pictures and stuff like that because that was the only thing that I was missing because I yeah. either listened to the audiobooks or read on my Kindle because I can read a lot faster and listen to the audiobook. Yep. 
and all this all this warfare equipment, all the, the tanks, whether it's American tanks or British tanks, yeah. Russian tanks, they're all they all look different. They all have different names and different calibers and all this, the different types of guns and so seeing pictures of them would would have added a little bit of like yeah. mass to the significance of what it says there. But you have all the stuff. For all I know, half that stuff is science fiction. You just made up these names and or you're taking something that's real and instead of being model thirty six, you're now model forty two and I wouldn't know the difference. Next iteration. Yeah. 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 So how does that work? Because for somebody who's writing military science fiction or anything that's technology, yeah. current real technology blended with future technology, how did you how do you do that? Yeah, so there's a number of defense um, websites that you can look at, like Breaking Defense, I think is one of them. There's a few of them out there, and they talk a lot about what is currently under development, what is like on the drawing board that they're looking at. Um, what is currently in progress and working. So when you look at a lot of those, you can kind of see, well, where are they in the, in, uh, the process of this? And then there's a number of YouTube channels out there that do really good analysis on future tech uh, equipment that's currently under, uh, under de uh, being developed right now. Um, and I do a lot of research for that kind of stuff. So when I want to write about a specific scene, then I, I kind of dive into, well, what do I want to talk about with this scene? If I want to talk about drones, well, what kind of drones? Uh, do I want to talk about the smaller killer drones that are just meant to kill one person? Or do I want to talk about like the, the Turkish Bayark drones where these things are uh, able to take out tanks because they can carry anti-tank missiles? They also have a new version that this, this Turkish group is actually working on. I'd encourage you to look at this one. This one is uh, what they call a UCAV. It's an unmanned combat aerial vehicle. And so this is essentially a 100% designed area, a remote piloted uh, fighter plane. And this is hands down what the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, should be developing. So they're working on a new sixth-generation fighter with, in addition to the F-35. To me, I'm thinking, why are we doing that? Because we should be already moving towards using unmanned aerial vehicles as fighter planes or strike strike bombers because when they when the air force sends in a strike package to go hit say okay war in ukraine right if they're going to go conduct a, a strike mission on Russia, the united states is not doing yeah, for everything that yeah. we know right now we're not but okay so if you're going to do that the way you have to do it is first you got to conduct basically they call it a seed mission suppression of enemy air defense and that means you're going to have to have uh, cruise missiles go in. First, you have the, the ISR intel stuff, then you send in some cruise missiles. Then you have wild weasel missions, which is F-16s going in, and they're looking for enemy radar. So when they, the radars lock on, then they fire a uh, harm anti-radiation missile at it. And if one of these aircraft gets shot down, well, now you have you know, a combat search and rescue that has to go in and do that. And they have to have their own assets to help protect them. It gets very cumbersome and very difficult to have to do because now you're involving multiple aircraft and helicopters and hundreds of people. But if you're using a remotely piloted fighter plane that's purposely built for this, you lose the plane, so what? It's a you know, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million dollar aircraft. You didn't lose a pilot. You didn't have to put a hundred other pilots and other people at risk in harm's way too. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say it's throwaway because you want to keep yeah. these things as much as you can. But it totally changes the dynamics of the war. It also makes warfare substantially cheaper in a way. The, the one downside, this is a really big ethical challenge, though, is you're dehumanizing war. 
because war is becoming a video game. It's like Call of Duty. I mean, for those of us who have been in a war and seen it, um, it's not Call of Duty, but it's becoming like that because you have people, you have younger kids operating these drones, essentially remote warfare. They don't actually have to see what it's like to have bullets fired at them or experience Mm -hmm. a mortar attack or an artillery attack. They're the ones delivering it from like Creech Air Force Base in Nevada over 4,000, 5,000 miles away. It's crazy because we're seeing that in Ukraine right now with the war going on over there where you have uh, upwards of 10,000 drones are airborne between both sides almost at any given time watching this multiple hundred long kilometer front line. That's in, that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we first started getting into writing, uh, we wrote a series, uh, our Red Storm series, it, it debuted back in uh, August of uh, 2017. First book in that one was Battlefield Ukraine. We went from Ukraine to Korea to Taiwan, Pacific, uh, Russia, and then China. And it's kind of crazy because we wrote about, when we wrote that one, we have the whole thing taking place in the Donbass, taking place in Crimea, taking place on the exact reasons that they in, that Putin did his SMO. It was What's un- SMO? They're a special military operation. It's, inc- it's uncanny because it's almost as if they read it and used those points or something, which is crazy. And we involved a lot of drone warfare. We involved the same meetings with the, with the Chinese and how this whole thing works. And it's just crazy because you talk about how you hope it stays fiction. Well, I hope it stays fiction, but I have an entire series that so far is playing out pretty damn close to reality. Monroe Doctrine? Well, the first one is actually the Red Storm series, mm-hmm. Battlefield Ukraine. I'm hoping to God that the Monroe Doctrine one doesn't oh, come to fruition please. because what's happening in artificial intelligence is scary. And it's crazy because it has so much good and potential that it can do from especially like medical medical assistance and help with identifying cancers and illnesses before we can normally diagnose it. But it has a bad evil side to it if it's not if we're not based on the user. So and that's the problem. Because militaries are gonna wanna weaponize this technology because we will want to make sure we can protect our country and our people uh, against an adversary from it. So we're gonna weaponize it. But that means others are going to weaponize it too. Mm-hmm. And now, because of the way AI works and the way cyber cyber warfare works, it's a poor man's army. You know, you have small nations and you have terrorist groups or extremist groups that can inflict national level damage on a nation with cyber attacks. You know, we saw that uh, before the Ukraine invasion, before the Russians invaded Ukraine, they had um, there was a, do you, I don't know if you remember it. There was a uh, a cyber attack on a a a gas pipeline in, in the northeast where they had shut down fuel distribution to most of the northeast and within 4 or 5 days you had people running out of gasoline you know that's a simple attack to happen against you know industrial control systems mm-hmm. that's what we're really concerned about in the future at least when i was working on some of the government side that was a big concern was how do you de- how do you handle that? You know, um, if you want to read a really scary thing, read Ted Koppel's Lights Out. <laughs> <laughs> he did a very good study on that one. That was also quite quite interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I just look at the, where where technology is going to go. What are, what hasn't been done yet? And yeah. you're trying to figure out how do I how do I convey this into a rational story plot? You know, AI for me was a really big one. I saw that as that's going to be the next future. Yeah, because you've got. The setup now in Monroe Doctrine, 
Yet the Chinese have been, they put out a, a free app yep. that took the world by storm and everyone would be in there doing all kinds of fun stuff on it. Yep. Lo and behold, this formative AI in China is using that to gain information and to develop profiles, yep. not just of individuals, but of countries, of peoples, yep. of groups. Yep. And based kind on like that- Kind of like TikTok. What's that? Kind of like TikTok. Kind of like. And based on that, it can predict behaviors. Correct. And then you got this thing that everybody's, oh, isn't this cool? This deep fake. Mm-hmm. And it takes that, and all of a sudden, you got the President of the United States saying things that he didn't really say. Correct. Or seeing him doing things that he didn't really do. Correct. Um, that when it goes viral, then there's no stopping it because there is no leash on social media. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, you've got all this conflict being generated by yep. this AI or by an opposition, by an enemy, in which case is China in here. Yep. And um, it got really crazy. And then, then the initial attack, yeah. you know, that, and we're talking that in the next couple of years in your, per your book, this is yep. 2023, now we're recording this, and this is in 2025. Yep. It takes place in, uh, yeah, right? It basically... Weeks before the uh, 2024 election is when it kicks off. Right. Um, and then rolls into 2025, 26, and 27. And so, it, yeah, it basically starts off like that. So there's something called predictive behavioral analysis or analytics, basically. It's looking at looking at your social behaviors and saying, okay, so if I want to build a social profile on John, I'm going to put a um, software – put some spyware on your your phone, your computer, your stuff there that's going to hop around uh, onto all your systems. And what will happen is over time, we're going to be able to build a social profile of you. We're going to look at your spending habits. We're going to look at what you spend your money on, what kind of online stuff you purchase, use, what are you, what are you viewing, how many times you check your emails, all, this, all that kind of stuff. We look at your responses to emails, responses to messages, because you have distinct patterns and ways that you write. Mm-hmm. We all do. It's called your author voice. Um, when we do that, we can then start to predict how you're going to respond to certain stimuli, to certain things. And then we start nudging you in certain ways. And so that's how social media works. It nudges you in certain ways. Sure. Um, so from a military application, if I'm a, a, um, a, a Chinese naval commander of a destroyer in the South China Sea, and I want to start pushing the Americans out, if I know who is the commander of this American warship that's entering my area, I know how he, I have his profile. I know what, how he's going to respond and react. And I know what he's allowed to do and what he's not allowed to do. So I push him up to the line and I push just a little over the line. And now he has to back, now he backs off because he doesn't want to create an international incident. And now what happens because he backed off, they create a new line. They create a new process. So now we, we, run right up to that next new line, and we push them a little further and a little further. And before you know, we've pushed them clear out of the whole South China Sea entirely. Um, But knowing that uh, predictive behavior of the commanders of these warships and of ground uh, ground commands is huge because the AI can then run simulated battles hundreds and hundreds of times Mm -hmm. of how different attacks should work. Should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? What if we bombard them with rockets? What if we do this? And using all these different variables, you know, from like 
observing how they test weapons, how they how they uh, how the weapons are being used in Ukraine is a really big example, um, and seeing how they work and respond. You can develop models, AI simulated models of how actions are going to play out, and if you do that enough times, when you do officially strike, you're going to strike and land a really hard blow. And we're going to be, if we're not using similar technology, we're going to be at a huge disadvantage because we're not going to know how to respond. We're going to be trying to respond with a, against an AI that's just outthinking us. It's just reacting really Which fast. Which is what happened in the... Uh, what happens in, in the, the opener. Opening thing. We just get clocked. And we get clocked really uniquely, too, because... Um, one of the biggest scary things I've talked to a few Navy guys about is uh, in World War One they used to have these things called Q ships, which are German merchant ships that were converted to warships, or warships converted to merchant ships, vice versa. And today you have modern cargo ships. Well, what if you took a cargo ship and you wanted to build it into like a military application? So. Sure, it looks like a cargo ship, but in the cargo hold section, you you fitted hundreds of vertical launch uh, missile pods to basically launch land attack cruise missiles or uh, naval naval anti ship missiles. Um, and then on the top, you put a you know trap door over top of it, and then you have all the shipping containers on on the top, so it looks like a cargo ship. And you just have this thing floating and moving around from port to port. And sure, maybe it's moving some legit cargo on the top, but what what's below it is a very sophisticated weapon platform. And so when you move into the position and the Chinese are ready to strike, uh, they unload. And next thing you know, the eastern seaboard, the Gulf, and the Pacific are getting hammered with just hundreds of cruise missiles hitting air bases, um, well, primarily going after the naval ports to hit mm -hmm. subs, hit the ships that are all in the docks in port right now, basically, and then hitting uh, a lot of the... Uh, like uh, air mobility command, so refueling aircraft, cargo aircraft, things like that, that would just, fighters are great, but fighters have very limited range without refuelers. You knock out a bunch of refuelers, you pretty much neutered most of an air force. Mm -hmm. And so they knew what to hit. And then they had sleeper cells inside the United States where they just pull out, you know, mortar tubes and start hitting bases in the, in the central parts of the country that the cruise missiles wouldn't be able to hit. Um, and before you know it, first couple hours, we've lost like a third of our military capability. Right. And now we're fighting on our back foot. You know, and so now it's a real fight. It's a much more level playing field, so to speak. You know. So now on because it's amazing strategies, because a lot of times when I read when I've read military thrillers, mm -hmm. you know, which I'll qualify this as, mm -hmm. um, there's you've got your your um your basic challenge and you've, you know, but yours it gets so deep and there's so many mm -hmm. and um, there's so many players in this thing here. And one of the things, which I know some writers have a, a problem with, you have a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. Keeping track of them all. Keeping track of them all. But also a lot of them like, oh, that's a cool guy. And he just got like toast with a 50 cal, you know, and it's like, what's it like where, you know, I've talked to other authors, like their their perspective on being able to do that, kill yeah. their, you know, their their characters. Yeah. So what's that like and what's the, how do you do that? And what's your... Yeah. So I think you, well, first off, keeping your character straight is challenging. Uh, yeah, keeping your character straight is going to be really challenging. I'm not going to lie. That, that is a hard thing. Um, I use... Uh, 
uh, Kindlepreneurs, uh, you know, Dave Chesterton has a really cool software that uh, uses that allows you to kind of like Vellum in a way. But I, I, I use different software and things like that to kind of help me track all my characters, my mm-hmm. scenes, right? Right. And so that way I have them all written there and I just carry them over from book to book. And it makes it much easier to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, it's called Atticus. You should okay, look good. it up. It's a great tool. Um, highly recommend Atticus. And so some characters have plot armor, okay? You're going to keep them around for a while. Some characters just don't. And... I learned from uh, watching, uh, actually it was uh, Game of Thrones, how George R. R. Martin was really good at developing these deep characters, make us invested in these characters, root for them, love them, like them, and then kill them. And he did it repeatedly through season after season. And you're just thinking to yourself, who's going to drop next? And, you know, you love and you hate it. And so... I started wanting to do that more with both the Monroe Doctrine and our sci-fi series. And so I've kind of been trying to work that in and write that in a little bit more because I think it, it makes it more real because at the end of the day, you know, when I'm writing about these military thrillers like this, this is real war, you know, this happens, you know, Mm -hmm. you're talking and then with your friend and then the next thing you know, a bomb goes off and, you both are like splayed out and you're just like, what the heck happened? Um, I mean, I was in Iraq and had a rocket come in and hit the T wall at just the right angle. It broke the detonator tip off and this rocket slid down into the, into the dirt right in front of me and my roommate. As we were walking back from Chow, it was uh, maybe 30, 40 feet in front of us, but it didn't go off. Had that thing gone off. I don't know that we'd be here. Right. But you know, how random this stuff is. It just happens like that. And so I try to write that into... The no, it's very much experience. there, how you do that. And it's just like you see, okay, here's this, you know, the, this female officer comes on, and you go, okay, yeah, that's, she's, that's cool, that's great. And then... Yeah, yeah the whole yeah. ship gets obliterated because... And we had a scene like this, where, and I think it was in book six, where, you know... There's a large amphibious operation going on. They're they're invading Taiwan, the, the uh, east side of Taiwan. They're pummeling the heck out of the beach areas. The Marines are all flying in. And wouldn't you know it, there's an E-3 seaman sitting there live streaming the assault on Twitter because he thinks it's cool as hell. But he's live streaming it. So Jay Dragon, the AI, the AI figures out, sees it. Zeroes in on the live stream, now has a geo-coordinate of, of the exact warship and where it's at, and directs, a, a, and directs a cruise missile attack to hit that ship and slam into it and sink the ship. And that all happened because an E-3 sailor was live streaming a really cool amphibious invasion that he wasn't supposed to do. But it's little things like that that get you killed in war. Yeah. And you don't think about it, but it really does. Like in uh, in the Ukraine-Russia war right now, when the guys are uh, using their cell phones, my God, you do not use a freaking cell phone anywhere near that battlefield at all. The the Russians or the Ukrainians, they will pick that crap up, and they will zero in on that location, and there will be a drone flying over your head with a grenade to drop on you. It's just that's how fast this stuff happens, and people don't – Think about it, but it really does. And so we like to write that into the books to show that realism, to, to let everyone know that the wars of the future are not at all going to be fought like the wars of the past. Right. My war in Iraq is going to be dramatically different than the wars of the future. 
you know, they're going to have to go through terrifying new technology pieces and things I never had to go through. I had to deal with IEDs and roadside bombs and suicide bombers. That's bad enough. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine having to deal with drones flying overhead, dropping random hand grenades on me. That's even Or even crazy. those the little mini drones that just fly in and just pop. Yeah, fly up to you and just pop with a little, you know, a little 38 single shot, you know, one shot and it's done. Or if it's got a small amount of explosives, just flies into a cluster of you and your buddies walking to chow and it detonates and everyone gets hit like it was a hand grenade went off. I mean, that's the future of warfare. It's terrifying. Yeah. And the question is, how do we counter this stuff? You know, uh, I think we had, we put in the book, we talk about how we use uh, uh, Boston Dynamics has their big dogs. We had something very similar where um, they, they basically put on a bi-directional microwave uh, type of um, um, module that they can more or less zap these drones as they start coming in. So when they detect the drones uh, approaching the, the soldiers, then it would activate and it would use a microwave to zap the electronics, basically. And that's how they're going to have to countermeasure this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for every action is a reaction, and it just constantly the chain and constantly. It rapid, and, and with AI, the speed with which technology can be developed changes so fast. It's just it's crazy scary. It's able to solve problems faster than we can. Yeah, yeah, it just solves problems more than we can, faster yeah. than we can. And that's that's what's so unique and so cool about it. And I love being able to write that. Like you really see when you read books one through eight, when eight's done, you'll really see the full fruition of it. But you can watch the actual development of the technology and the weapons, how they actually evolved from what was used in book one to what we end up with in book eight. You're seeing the full evolution of that development of how weapons that were on the drawing board are now rapidly being thrown into military production. They're just, well, we're not going to test anything. We're just throwing it out there just like World War II. We'll see if it works. Um, and that's how it, it kind of happens. I mean, we, we saw that in Iraq with the, uh, the uh, up-armored vehicles when we were dealing with that and trying to counter IEDs and, and things, um, just crazy unique things that we had to adjust to. Right. And then when we adjusted to it, the enemy adjusted to it. It was insane how fast that stuff would happen. Yeah. It's interesting, too, later on you start pulling in um, Space Force takes. Mm-hmm. A, a, takes a role now in in modern warfare, yep. and it's interesting. I was just actually just earlier today. I was doing a FaceTime with um, Lieutenant General Thompson. He was mm. he just retired, but he was one of the um, creators of Space Force. Awesome. Um, and um, at uh, Los Angeles uh, mm. base there, and um, just crazy, you know, yeah. the technology. So what you have there and those those vehicles is because that's all in the book. It's all super secret. Nobody knows about it. Yep. So how do you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, believe it or not, uh, the U.S. has a very long history with DARPA and a few other agencies um, of doing space-based weapon technology research from mm-hmm. the 1960s and 70s. They started with Brilliant Pebbles. And then worked up to uh, like Project Thor and a couple of these other things where you know, the strategic defense initiative type stuff. Um, a lot of that was using uh, kinetic-based weapons. So you're going to put a satellite in space with uh, tungsten rods, more or less, that would fall from space down and hit. And these things can hit with essentially the same power of a nuclear bomb without any radiation because there's literally no warhead. It is just kinetic energy. Um 
the problem was that type of technology and stuff doesn't really work. Uh, it's not economical. Now, it might be economical now because of the reusable SpaceX uh, rockets. But before, when you just had the, the shuttles, you know, one shot up there and, you know, that was not an economical way to launch weapons and mm-hmm. do that. I suspect they're real looking at kinetic-based weapons. Um, they even had something else that you'll we mentioned in Book 7 talking about uh, uh, tectonic uh, weapons. And looking at that, that gets really scary. Yeah. There, yeah, that for me, that's the scariest one because that was like, oh my you gosh, just you just you can take out doing. the whole West Coast. Yeah, you don't, you can't. When you initiate an earthquake, when you strike a, 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 a you strike a, a plate um, to initiate an earthquake, you don't know where that quake's actually going to stop, right? Or how how much force it's going to be. But when you have an underground bunker that's two thousand feet underground. Your options of trying to damage the, the the shell are very limited. You're either going to you know dropping uh, nuclear bunker busters on top of it, which you don't want to do because you're going to be hitting nuclear bombs on actual ground, which is what throws up the radiation and, and, and stuff. Or you're going to have to find a way to cause an earthquake. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's interesting trying to think about how do you end this book? How do you end this series mm-hmm. on a high note, on a really good, unexpected way? Yeah, which it, I can tell I'm, you privately. <laughs> good, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely, I like suspense. I like thrills. I don't have a problem going down to the depths of, of Hades, but it better end up. Oh, yeah. On going up where, you know, I'm not. Oh, you're going to love the endings. You're going to love good, the endings. Like, and I, the way I want to end this, okay, so I, I personally feel I didn't do my, myself or the readers justice in ending the last couple of series because there wasn't enough of the post-conflict. There wasn't enough talking about well, what happened after this whole thing ended and a lot of the characters, so to speak. They wanted to know more about it. So I'm trying to dedicate close to a quarter to a third of the last half of the book to being about the follow-up post-war and being following just tying up some of the characters and a little bit of what's going on because readers have invested a lot of time and energy at this point for in sure these characters. including they, this reader yeah they want to know what <laughs> happens and and i want to be able to do that and yeah. i want to i spent like say almost three years writing this thing i want to make sure i end it on the right note yeah because I'm a reader myself. I mm-hmm. like reading these, these kinds of books too. That's why I write these books because yeah. no one else writes them. Um, so I write what I want to read, and I also want to see that done too as a reader. And so yeah. that's what I want to try to put a lot of emphasis on doing, which is why it's taking me a little longer to get this uh, last book done. But we're scheduled to get this one done on uh, October 30th. Ideally, I'm going to have it going into editing at the end of end of uh, August. And it may be ready to release in end of September, early October. As soon as it's ready to release, that's typically what we, what we do. So we, we always schedule it out and try to build in some buffer space. And then if it gets done early, then we just release early. And invariably, we've almost always released early. Um, once in a while, we'll have to push a release back, but that's usually because of COVID. <laughs> yeah. But for anybody that enjoys reading series, then by October, you're going to be able to get through all the whole thing. The whole thing up and, through, and, you know, through eight. Here's the best part about a series, okay? There are, there's nothing wrong with writing a standalone book. Some sure. write, some authors, that's what they love to do is a standalone book, one and done. For me, what I 
why I write series is because I like to tell a big story. I like to tell a very complex story like an onion. You have to unravel mm-hmm. it one layer at a time. And as you keep unraveling, you're like, oh, my God, there's more, to do, more threads, more mystery, more stuff to unravel. That takes time to do it well. Mm-hmm. You can't write a complex story like this in one or two books. No way. Because this whole thing is going to be probably close to about a million word count for the eight books. So each book's about between 105 to uh, the, the biggest one, I think, was 150. Um, so they range, you know, they're pretty good-sized books. But you can't tell a really complex story like that in Mm-mm. a condensed one or two book. And and I think people enjoy a bigger story like that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of readers. That I've got, because we have... Two of the books we do really well with, what we published, that Owen Hubbard wrote, One Battlefield Earth, which we've talked mm-hmm. about before. And that's, yeah. it's a big book. You know, it's a thousand pages, but it's, mm-hmm. it's one book. Some people have argued that should be two books. That should be three books. When we translated it in Spanish, it was three books. When we did mm-hmm. it in Japan, I think it was seven. Wow. You know, just, it's, it's a lot of words, you know, 425,000 words. But then he went out wow. the following year. And wrote Mission Earth, which is 1.2 million words. Oh my goodness! He wrote it. Just sit down and just wrote the whole thing in, in eight months. He just went bam. Wow. And then I think it was 92 parts or something like that. So then after the fact, okay, we need to break this up. That's a pretty thick book. What year did he write that? That was in uh, 81. Wow, see, I marvel at these writers who could do that back then because they were doing this before we had Microsoft Word, before we had the internet for he research. He had two manual typewriters that he'd use. I think it was Smith Comet. <sighs> but he'd have one and he'd, he'd type on it until it broke, and then he'd take the other one, send that one back to the repair, repair yeah. shop to be fixed, yeah. and he'd just rotate through them, you know, going through these typewriters. And um, we have a thing back in our office in the Owen Hubbard Library a big stack about three feet tall of all the pages of <laughs> the manuscript for, for Mission Earth. He had a, a yellow pad that he'd make notes at nighttime. Yeah. He'd wake up and have, oh, yeah, I need to write a little note that. But he has yeah. hundreds of pages of notes that in the new version we're coming out with, we have several pages of wow. the author's notes there. We yeah. see his handwritten notes, then it's transcribed there so you can see also the type as well as what it was there. But it's it was amazing how he did that just because you're right, to get – that much, yeah, you know, depth and all these. Yeah. It's not just a plot line. There's, there's all, so much there's in your so head. So many, yeah. yeah. So, what he did with that, you know, and how it goes. And this one here, in volume eight, narrator change. It goes mm-hmm. from. It's a, it's a confession of mm-hmm. the, the guy of of um, Sultan Gris. He's actually the bad guy, but he's the narrator, and the good guy, the the hero, is who he keeps on trying to foil. Mm-hmm. Mission Earth is actually a mission to keep Earth from destroying itself yeah. with pollution and crime and drugs and, and perversions stuff, and stuff yeah. like that. And so, and then by volume, halfway through volume eight, then he's in jail. And now you find, you go ahead a hundred years in the future and you find out somebody else is on the trail now. This other guy, Monty Penwell, is a, new, a whole new narrator. Oh, my so gosh. He narrators, narrates the last book and a half or two and a half books. So it's amazing what he did on this, on this no, thing. We you... did it all in eight months, 1.2 million words. Wow. All 10 books were New York Times bestsellers. And wow. just fascinating. It's satire. It's just yeah. planet Earth from the viewpoint of an alien seeing all this crazy yeah. stuff here. That's like creative genius to be able to come up with this stuff, to just – Spit it out of your head like that and do that. Um, I mean, on a good day, I I can I think my best day I wrote fourteen thousand words in one day. 
Uh, it's probably about 10. That's crazy hours. good. But I don't get many days like that, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish yeah. I did. I don't. Um, as I've got three kids now, and as my daughter is now almost four, uh, it's been really getting a little hard there because— My uh, turn, Daddy. My I know, turn. I know. I know they're always interrupting, <laughs> but you know, I want to give them all the time they can have. But it is challenging sometimes um, to, to stay with the work count. I mean, uh, I do write a lot compared yeah. to a lot of writers. I don't write as much as some. Um, I usually—I probably— I usually publish about four books a year. I write about five. So uh, that's, you know, 120,000 words a book. You know, we usually write five, publish four. Because uh, it goes through two rounds of edits, you know, mm-hmm. rounds of professional editing. That takes about, you know, four to six weeks to usually go through that cycle there. And it takes me around uh, between eight and ten weeks to usually write one book. Um it depends what genre and stuff. That's a good speed there, though. That's definitely a good speed. It's just a lot of research. The military thrillers take a lot longer to write. Yeah, and that's what I was just I was wondering. Like, your research has got to be – I wasn't sure how much – he's got such bullpen for some, what, 20 years in the military? I had, well, I had 10 years in the military, but I had another eight years working as a contractor inside the military and the intel community. Yeah. So 18 years. So I yeah. was wondering how much of that's bullpen, how much of you have to sit down and just, like – Fair bit of I know. Fair bit of I know. And then there's obviously all the books I've written. Have, you know, I have a lot of institutional knowledge from that. But yeah. when I go to the, some of the new tech stuff, man, I got to start researching out this and that. And, uh, it, but also when you want to write in a, a fighter scene, you want to write in a tank scene, you want to get the terminology right. So then I lean on my reader team. And my reader team's huge. It's, uh, almost 700 people uh, on there. And I'll throw out a question. Hey, um, I need tankers. Who who's driven uh, an M1 Abrams tank? And I've got a handful of guys who were in the first Gulf War, and they actually you know were fighting tanks actually against Iraqi tanks, and so they've been able to help me write some of the sequences and actions. Uh, two of them were in 73, which was a really big tank battle in the first Gulf War, and so they were able to help me with just crafting the right tank scenes, how that works. Uh, another guy was a he's a colonel, a retired colonel in the Marines, flew uh, Viper attack helicopters, and so he was able to help me write a really cool, you know, kick butt uh, Viper scene where we had a bunch of attack helicopters in uh, book six mm-hmm. was going in and doing that. And so he helped with that portion. Um, another, we're actually going to Taiwan for our next series to do the research. Uh, so I have, uh, believe it or not, I have four of my readers actually coming to Taiwan with me um, <laughs> to do the research. One of them is, uh, he retired recently uh, from the Marine Corps Reserves. He's a, he's a retired colonel as well. And so He's going there and he did a lot of mission planning. He's going to be helping me looking at this and say, we're looking at all the where potential invasion points would be, whether it's VSC, uh, Helleborne, or Airborne. And we're going to go check out all these different sites. What's VSC? Uh, well, whether they're going to invade by a seaborne invasion, uh, either Helleborne, you know, helicopters, or through uh, paratroopers. And so there's all three of those are different locations and different positions. And then there's strategic areas where they need it to hit and neutralize immediately. Um, and we're kind of going to go at this from two different points. So one is looking at if I'm the Chinese general in charge of doing this, using my military knowledge, how would I do this? Mm-hmm. So then we construct the attack sequence. And then we say, okay, we've done that. Now let's flip roles. As a defender, how am I going to defend against the known avenues of attack they're likely to, to do? And then we come up with that. And we lay them both out, and then we look at that and say, all right, this is what we have. So we red sold it. We wargamed this whole thing. What have we not thought about next? What are we missing? What other piece of technology could be employed that we haven't done or seen yet? Mm-hmm. And, or, we, or in this case, we're going to look at the uh, Russo-Ukraine uh, war, and we're going to say, well, well, what are they doing 
that we could employ here and how would that change things and just see where it goes. And so that's how we set up the plot. So that's like plotting the whole series, how it'll work. And then it's about filling in all the pieces then after that. So, wow. I mean, I did the same thing with Monroe Doctrines. I really wargamed out how this whole thing would work first and then broke down, okay, so by book, here's what has to happen in each of these books. Um, so you're definitely a plotter. That. You're not a pantser as an author. Uh, so that's kind of a tough one. I'm not a plotter, but I'm not a pantser. I mean, I have a rough plot. I don't have a detailed plot. I have friends of mine who will have a 15 or 20,000 word plot. That's not me. Right. Um, so I tend to go with uh, the way I, I lay out all of my books. Okay, I have um, chapter one, two, three, four, five, all, all the way on down. I guess so I'll put say ten chapters. Then what I do is I say first chapter needs to be an action chapter. The next chapter is either action or dialogue, and then it's going to be either uh, then it'll usually be dialogue. And sometimes if I have a chapter where I know I'm going to do scene breaks, I want to know every scene is it an action scene or a dialogue scene. And what I'm doing is now I'm structuring how I want the book to actually lay out. And structuring the book is what makes it a page-turner like you've seen. Sure. So uh, there's a book called The Bestseller Code by Matt Jocker and Jody Archer. Best book you'll ever read about writing. You learn that. That's like understanding like the neural science of reading. Okay. Mm. So what happens is when you lay out your book, the first chapter has to be that action chapter because it grabs the reader. Right. And then the second chapter depends on how big the first one is. You can either be a continuation of the action from the first or it's a new action or it's a dialogue. What you don't want to do is you don't want to start out dialogue and you don't want to start out with uh, like three actions or three dialogues in a row. At most, you want to have two of each. I mean, you can go maybe three actions in a row, but it really depends on how you pace it and how big those particular chapters are. I don't have like right. 15,000 words of action because the reader needs a break. They need to take a breath. And so what happens when you create this flow like that, it's almost like a ladder or like an EKG of a heartbeat. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. So that's your positive, your negative, your positive, your negative beats. Uh, and a book has, a, has beats. Mm -hmm. And so when you write it out like that, you end up with an absolute page turner. And when you read the bestseller code, they talk about uh, how they developed that, how they came up with that theory. Uh, they analyzed something like 20,000 um, New York Times bestseller books that they looked at and said, well, what do they all have in common? What are the precise things they all seem to care, right. all seem to have? And those were the things they noticed was the beats. And then they noticed how the beats were. And they're basically placed between every 9% and 13% of a book is a positive or negative beat, like an EKG, the heartbeat. And so you can structure your book like that before you even begin writing it. And so that's what I do is I lay out the book. I have you know, 50, you know, 20, 30, or 40 chapters, however many it is, but I immediately lay out is it a dialogue, action, and so on. And then I usually put in a couple lines of, well, if it's action, what kind of action? Put in a couple of quick lines of, well, is this going to be the Rangers assaulting this particular airfield? Or it's going to be a naval attack on this? Or it's going to be a briefing, presidential briefing to summarize what happened with these attacks? Because the way I write my books is I have uh, typically three perspectives. 
First is your upper level echelon. So you have your presidential level uh, or a strategic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go down to the command level, which will be the generals to the battalion commanders who have to implement the strategy that comes from on high. And then we go to the grunts, the, the dudes in the trenches or having to go through the jungles who have to actually go fight the enemy. Right. And telling it in that cycle, those three cycles like that, allows the reader to see the whole picture what's going on from all aspects and avenues. And in, it, it's a little bit of something for every person who likes that type of genre, that type of big grand war strategy style. Um, but it still gives you really good nitty gritty action without the whole book being like that. Yeah, that's you know? true. And it's not all strategy either, which no. is cool too. Yeah, so now your characters, how many of them are like people you know, knew, Mm-hmm. A couple um, of them, quite a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. So the vast majority of the characters um, in our books, are, believe it or not, are come from um, names from our reader group. So I ask a lot of them, uh, if you want to be in the book, let me know. And so I have, a, one, I have one big thread where there's like 200 and some people who have all responded they want to be in the book and what name they want. And so I do that and uh, I, I pull names. That's one way I pull names. Um, I also write, uh, I also use names of some of the guys I've served with in the military. Uh, usually it's uh, some of the guys who've gotten killed. Um, in uh, the sci-fi series, I use a lot of Medal of Honor re- recipient names, believe it or not, uh, from World War II to Vietnam to Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, just kind of way to pay it forward and tribute mm-hmm. them like that. Um, and then in this series, Monroe Doctrine, so the, the British scientist, the research guy at Oxford, uh, I based that one off of one of the professors I knew at Oxford. So uh, his name was uh, Dr. David Upton. He was the head of the Oxford uh, Computer Science Department. And he was in charge of doing predictive behavioral analysis for Oxford. And he was working on several really unique Met Police projects and things like that. Um, and so I modeled that whole character. Everything was on him. Um, and he was a professor at Christchurch um, and... I modeled the whole interaction between him and David Ma around my own experiences at Oxford and, um, you know, this particular professor and his schooling and what he did and things that he was involved in and whatever like that. Yeah. No, it was very cool how you did that. That was, um, that was fascinating. I was just curious how many of these people and how many of you replaced with people you wish were on that post yeah. that weren't there in real life, but that I wish the person was like this, you know, mm-hmm. your president is really cool. She's yeah. she's great. You know, yeah. I really like your your president there. She's I like it too. And I wanted to have someone dynamic like that. You know, yeah. I wanted to have someone who was um, a veteran, kind of an outsider too, in a way. Who's just you know. Was she modeled after anybody that's maybe was a congressperson uh, from Hawaii? Yeah, you picked up on Trust that. Okay? Yes, yeah. yeah, so you picked up on that. So yeah. I kind of wanted to like little, her a lot. Yeah, I kind of wanted someone who was a bit of a maverick. Mm-hmm. And I, I just figured, you know, that would be kind of a cool way of being able to do that. Um, and it's so hard because, you know, you want – the books are not – I don't write these things to be political. All of my books are actually cautionary tales of what could happen. Yeah. You know, Monroe Doctrine is a cautionary tale of, of AI and, and, and some of the things that China is doing with AI with their social credit systems and some of the other nefarious activities and things between that – the Belt and Road Initiative, it's a cautionary tale of what could happen. Um, our Falling Empire series was really a cautionary tale, again, of, of like 
uh, you know, social media influencing on elections and outside interferences and influences, and how you can change and manipulate elections well, that's just, and that's stuff. That's total fantasy. Terrible. That's yeah. just fantasy, James. It was terrifying because I wrote this thing in 2018. I came out in 2019. It came out in 2019 all through 2020, obviously. Um, I was like, who would have known? But it freaking followed the whole playbook. Um, and I, again, what I did was I looked at it and said, okay, given my background and experience, if I was going to red sell this against my own country, how would I do this? How would I jack this thing up? And I said, this is exactly how I would do it. Wrote, wrote out the whole plot and ran with the whole story of how I would do it. Um, same thing with the Red Storm, with the Ukraine thing, and, and the NATO expansion, all sort of stuff like that. It's like, well, okay, if I'm the Russians, how would I perceive this? And how would I try to manipulate and change this stuff with a new president? And went along that way. So every book and series is really written kind of as a cautionary tale. I really try to stay away from uh, being as apolitical as I can. Right. That's not always possible. Um but what I try to do when I have to write anything is I try to make it as true to the actual character as possible. And I got two one-star reviews on the book, and I was so proud of those one-star reviews because one says this is like uh, left-wing propaganda, and the very next one-star says this is right-wing propaganda. And I was like, yes, I have succeeded because I have managed to craft characters that were so real and accurate to who they were actually trying to portray, that they triggered two different people from two different spectrums. And I think that's a sign of good writing. When mm -hmm. your if, your if your character's Russian, they need to be legit Russian. They've got to have a Russian point of view, a Russian perspective, and that's not always going to be friendly or nice thoughts about America or something. Um, if it's Chinese or Japanese or American, whatever, it's got to be true to the character. Yeah, when Elwin Hubbard wrote Final Blackout, he was yeah. accused with that book of being a communist, and he was also accused of being a fascist, mm -hmm. you know? And they were just like, they both charged him. It was like two extremes of the spectrum, Yep, charge, you know, charging of being the other. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, our job as, as writers is to create um, a fictional escape from reality. Mm -hmm. We are there to, to entertain and educate and if you can do both at the same time, that's even better. Um, you know, because some books are all about educating, some are all about entertaining. But if you can combine the two, you've really done a really good yeah. job. And that's what I try to do with all of the books is paint a very realistic uh, perception of what what wars and combat can be like. Um, but just also a little bit of cautionary tale about what's going on with that particular series. Yeah. Um, you know, to try and do that. But again... Our job is to entertain. I don't yeah. want to tell you what you should believe or not believe or who you should vote no, for you or not vote you, for. You don't it's get that. Just, yeah. For me, I just got totally yeah. freaked out about how <laughs> World War Three could come to be. And so easily. So easily. Yeah. So, it's easily. Just, so it, it has nothing to do with being Republican or Democrat. It's just mm -hmm. straight, oh, my God, here. This is like, like – because all the, all the handwriting's on the wall. Yeah. You know, all the stuff that's happening here. Well, and we get so we get so polarized amongst ourselves. Yeah. We don't realize people outside the country, they don't care about this stuff. They love the fact that we're all divisive and this and that I because know. we're distracted. And they are not. They're very focused on what it is they're doing. Yeah. And they want us to stay this way. And so they obviously are going to encourage certain things to keep to maintain, the friction. To maintain the friction going yeah. here. So, But don't think we don't do that too. 
Right. We do that too to foreign countries and adversaries. No, it's all just, it's the some time. games being played, that whole thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay, now we got five minutes left here. I want to be able to address a bit. You're in the top 100 authors, best selling authors on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, a little bit of your strategy so that people listening to this thing are like, how can they better uh, take advantage of what Amazon has to offer or what yeah. they need to do to be able to make yeah. it? Because you're an indie author. Yeah. And it's uh, tough. You're, it's a, very tough. you're a 19, you're 19 digit sit seller. You got, you, you know, some people stop at seven digits. You're up to 19 <laughs> digits now. Not. But, we're getting uh, there. We're getting there. We're we getting sell there. a lot of books. We sell probably about 220 to 240,000 copies uh, a year. So, I mean, we, we do move a lot of books. So, that's awesome there. So, a little bit of your strategy, because you said you want to make New York Times bestseller. Let's, let's talk about what to do on this. Yeah. So, what should somebody do? What are some of the, the, the basic game plan that somebody should sure. anticipate or, or work with? Well, the number one thing you got to do is first, first and foremost, you have to have a good book, period. Absolutely. Right. That's number one. Um, I would recommend reading the bestseller code to understand how to construct a book, what makes a book a bestseller. That anatomy is really crucial to understand that before you even start. And then it's just about... Finding a mentor, honestly, if you can pair up with another writer or author who's doing good, who knows what they're doing, and they're willing to give you the time of day and show you some of the ropes, my God, that could save that could shave years off your off your development right mm -hmm. there. Uh, that's another big part of seeing if you can find a mentor and constantly learning. Never be afraid to, to ask questions. Always learn. Seek out resources. And you've got to be willing to outwork every single other person out there because this is a doggy dog business. It's very hard to get ahead. You're competing against hundreds and hundreds of books being published every single day, if not more. No, that, that's, um, that's correct. It's very hard. It's very hard. And the way I approached it was I worked really hard. I still work very hard right now. But what I did was I invested everything I could into marketing. I worked a full-time job. I wrote full-time. And I lived on one income and my writing income was going reinvesting into marketing. You know, finding a really good professional editor covers book description. A book description is not a synopsis of your book. It is not a recap of your book. It is a description it should be full of little hooks to entice them to buy the book or to download the book and try it out. Mm -hmm. And then that first chapter, those first few paragraphs, better grab them really hard and pull them in. And then you just continue moving through there. And then having a process ready where book one's done, well, good. What's, what's up with book two? Do you have the pre-order link ready? Are you ready to, to have that pre-order launch, have it at the end of the next book and continue to keep the cycle going? And so... Professional editing, professional covers, knowing how to write a book description, and having a good book. Those are the critical keys there, and just outworking everyone. Yeah, that's that's good tip there. Now, just on the investment. So mm -hmm. you said, so you do a lot of advertising through? Through Amazon, and then I do some through Facebook. So when you started, how much did you invest, and how much? Oh, So when I was first starting, man, I, I, I may have done maybe, you know, 50 to $100 a month back in 2015 and 2016. And it started to pick up a little bit more into a few hundred. Then uh, by 2017, it was getting into maybe 1,000 or, or 2,000 a month. And that was getting to be kind of, kind of hard to be able to do at first. Uh, but as you start making more money, you need to start investing very heavy because you need to keep growing your readership. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to sell 10,000 copies once. You need to sell 10,000 copies every month and keep that rolling. That's very, very hard to do. And so over time, 
2015, 2016 were the easy money like that anymore. It's a lot tougher now. You've got to invest in getting eyeballs, impressions. And so whether that's through Facebook or through Amazon, uh, Amazon's got a lot of great tools to advertise on, to do self, you know, your own self-directed advertising. Um, and then paid management advertising too on the more expensive side. But it's challenging. There's uh, Mark Dawson has a group called Self Publishing Formula on uh, on Facebook, and you can look up up on uh, YouTube. Hands down, that's a great group to join. I joined that back in 2017, and have never looked back. Um, really, and good then also Kindlepreneur. Yeah, Dave Ken, Chesson is yep, also really yep, good. Dave's a good friend, and uh, Kindlepreneur is awesome. That he owns uh, Atticus and uh, KDP Rocket. Yeah. So those are great tools to help you with finding keywords and how to target and what to go after. And marketing is tough, man. I'm telling you, writing the book will be the easiest thing you'll ever do. Marketing that book and selling it—that's going to be the real hard challenge for you. And that's where you're going to spend a lot of time and hours. You know, you got to look at this as an entrepreneur. You're starting a tech startup, okay? You are out there against you and everyone else. You have this tech startup. It's your book. It's called your business. You're going to spend 10, 20 hours or 30 hours a week on your book. You're going to spend 10, 20 hours a week learning how to market, spending hours on YouTube, learning how to do digital marketing. It is all there for you. You just have got to be willing to put the Netflix down, stop binging whatever you're doing, and invest time in this. You have 24 hours in a day, okay? So you take six hours to sleep. That's plenty of time to sleep. If you get six solid hours, whatever. That gives you 18 hours left. So you spend eight hours with your family, and that gives you 10 hours left. Well, 10 times seven, that's 70 hours that you can spend on your business. Whether you spend it all on writing or researching or split it up here and there, you can do that. You have eight hours of family, six hours of sleep, and 10 hours of work. And you do that seven days a week. Now, you take days off, you have other days you may, you may not do any work for three, four days. But you're going. To, but it rounds out basically mm-hmm. overall for the month. It's going to round out. And again, this is a startup. I am not working like an animal like this for the rest of my life. I'm working like this because I'm very close to where I, a certain level I want to hit. And then I want to say I can pare back, but I will have grown my audience to a certain level where instead of having to write six books a year or four books a year, I can write two books a year and still hit the same numbers because my audience isn't 10,000 or 20,000. It's now 250,000. Mm-hmm. And that's what you got to get to. Right. So it's a matter of how fast can you get there. And that's going to come down to writing a really good book and spending money on advertising. Keep on writing books. Keep writing good books. That's awesome. But again, this is not a lifetime thing for me to do. You just, you've got to be willing to say how much, how long do I need to invest in doing this? You're investing in you and your family and your kids because this is something that, that can get handed down to them. And once the series is written, just because it's done, doesn't mean it has to stop earning. Right. I've got series that are five years old that still earn sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year because I still advertise them. I mm-hmm. recover them, do a new description, and continue advertising them, and they still make money. Yeah. That's the key. You're not going to make a million dollars a year typically off of one book or one series. You're going to make it off a of three, four, five series. Is how you is is an easier way of being able to mm-hmm. do that. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've gone past our, our time, but I just I had to get that last question no, answered, which is great. which is great. So I really appreciate this, and um, I'm so anxious to read volume eight. You know, so um, I think uh, I'm anxious to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so thank you very much, James. It's been great having you as a guest. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And so for people to find you, they go to? Uh, you can find me up on uh, Facebook, uh, uh, James Rizone. Um You can also find me on Twitter. I'm on there as well. So, And then on, obviously on, on Amazon, Amazon. Yep. just James Rizone, and you'll find the 15 pages of books that you've yeah. uh, or thereabouts. <laughs> anyway, again, it's been great having you as a guest. Thank you again appreciate very much, James. It. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, James. <laughs> <laughs>